According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll take a moment to turn off our cell phones and uh, other necessary preparatory matters. Hasn't happened to me yet, but it will someday. All right. Beyond the earthly things, turning off cell phones and making sure you got a pen with ink in it and things like that. The time of silent prayer at the beginning of Bible class is designed to confess any sins that need to be confessed. Uh, to and, and even if you're in fellowship, you can still take preparatory measures to receiving instruction. And that is you can humble your heart. You can ask the Lord to uh, clear away any pride or any other distractions, things that would keep you from receiving the message of God's word. Because sometimes when God's word goes forth, it's a reproof. It's a rebuke. And we need to be prepared to receive those so that we don't just react and say, oh, the pastor's out of fellowship this morning. He's picking on me. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's take time to ask the Father to sanctify our thinking and to, uh, to work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you for the grace privilege we have to assemble this morning. We recognize that this is a grace provision, that we don't deserve to be here. But, Father, you've supplied the health. You've supplied the, the finances, the transportation. We thank you for that. We ask for your hand of blessing upon our study, that the word we receive this morning would be the word that we need for our present conflict. We thank you that He, our Savior, is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother and ever-present help in time of trouble. And, Father, the more we learn about prayer, the more we realize that... Uh, the confidence we have to boldly approach the throne of grace to uh, find mercy and obtain grace to help in time of need. We realize, Father, that every time is a time of need. All the time is a time of need. Day by day and moment by moment, we, uh, we want to keep ourselves constantly before that throne. We just thank you. We praise you for being faithful. We pray that we might learn the, uh, the lessons that we have to learn on this day. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is our second session in the call of Matthew, and we're using Matthew chapter 9 as our primary text. We're going to use Mark and Luke as a supplementary material. It only seems right that we use the text written by the person in question, given that Matthew is the author of this gospel and also the subject of this episode. So let's get it in his own words and then in the gospel of Matthew, and then we'll, get, uh, we'll fill in the details with the Mark and the Luke records as well. There's really five things we're going to glean out of this study. And um, we left off, we've covered two of them already to this point. Matthew, the tax collector, is the name found in his own gospel, in his own gospel record of his calling. Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew, the tax collector. He consistently calls himself that in the listings of the twelve, as well as in the narrative of this event. Over in the Mark narrative and in the, Le and in the Luke narrative, he's called Levi. Christ is passing by and there's a tax booth in Capernaum and the fellow in there's name is Levi. But when you read Matthew's gospel, the fellow in there's name is Matthew. And coming from his own pen, that's the way he wanted to be called. 
uh, Matthias, gift of God. It is a, a testimony to grace. It's a testimony to knowing what it is that God has done in your life. And each one of us ought to be able to look back to our salvation and realize it's a gift of grace. Each one of us ought to be able to look back to our calling. Uh, in whatever calling or fashion the Lord has used us in, and realize that's a gift of grace as well. Now, we spent some time dealing with the different name issues and gave you the uh, name of Levi as a subpoint and the, the uh, dodecapostologues, the list of twelves uh, as well. I won't go back into some of those. Uh, Levi, actually his given name, and uh, the other three Levi's in Scripture that we have besides this one. But in the, uh, in the list of twelves, in the uh, dodecapostologues, the list of the twelve apostles, have you done your homework? Did you write out the list of twelve in Matthew and the list of twelve in Mark and the list of twelve? You need to do it. In Luke, the list of twelve in, uh, in Acts. Those are your dodecapostologues, your listing of the twelve apostles. And it's a fun exercise. Bob did it. I know he's the one that's done it in this class. All right, so Bob gets extra credit. Um... The other issues there are worth, uh, worth a good study. Under point two, tax collectors were considered traitors as employees in the service of the Roman government. And so as such, they find themselves uh, tied to whoops, the term sinners, tax collectors and sinners. And you find them paired together in a number of places, tax collectors and sinners. And uh, it forms uh, an epithet, as it were, uh, fighting words, you know, where you just... Write somebody off as a tax collector, as a sinner. Uh, it'd be like calling them a Gentile, you know, and other horrible things. To a devout Jew, what that meant was, was that you might be racially Jewish, but you have no part in the blessings of Abraham because you are cavorting with the enemy. You are working with them. You, are, uh, you have no place at the table for ritual observance of Passover or Pentecost or booths or any of the uh, celebrations throughout the year. You know, yesterday was Rosh Hashanah. Well, you can't participate. See, I guess that's still going on. It was from sundown yesterday to sundown today is, uh, is you know, Happy New Year. And as far as the Jewish calendar and what they've been following all these years. All right. Well, to a non-observant Jew, this is where we kind of part of the culture escapes us because we're accustomed to. You know, the people we work with, friends, neighbors, and so forth. And, you know, you've got churchgoers and non-churchgoers, right? And we basically view them as you've got saved and lost. And if you're lost, you need the gospel and that kind of thing. We want to evangelize the lost. We want to, uh, and, and if they're saved but not going to church, well, what do we do with them? We want to come alongside and encourage them and say, hey, you know, you're not really a disciple, are you? You need to abide in the Word. You could use a good Bible church where the Word of God is taught and so forth. Well, that's kind of the approach we take living in the, in the age of grace. But try to put yourself back now 2,000 years living in a Jewish economy where they have not only a, a, uh, a culture, but that culture is totally caught up in their law, in their uh, you have the, the ceremonial law, the civil law, and all of that is all contained in their scriptures. And so um, there's, there's not the disconnect with them that we would have with us, so to speak. In other words, we can still, um, we have a, an American culture, a secular culture, as it were. And then, of course, our church family. And, and we wouldn't think of, uh, you know, if the neighborhood 
has a Fourth of July picnic or whatever, or there's some kind of a celebration or observance that's going on in the community or what have you, Thanksgiving, or, you know, we all kind of follow the same calendar, as it were, in secular life. And we wouldn't think of excluding somebody from participating in a, in a picnic. It's a neighborhood picnic. So your neighbors come over, right? What I'm trying to say is that the integration of civil law with ceremonial law with everything, it was all-encompassing to the Jewish people. And it was designed to be that way, all right? And so uh, sinners, calling somebody a sinner, what that meant was, was here was a Jew who was not even making an attempt to live under the law. Not even making an attempt to follow the laws of Moses, making no attempt to live under the either the ceremonial law or the civil law or even the moral law. You know, as far as the Ten Commandments are concerned, who cares? That's all old-fashioned religious stuff. What are you, a Bible thumper or a, you know, a, a Torah thumper? You know, the, the Jewish person, see? It was, and so that becomes a part of their culture. That they're not, they are non-observant Jews. They're racially Jewish, but they're not observing the law, either moral civil, ceremonial, or any such thing. And so to an observant Jew, that person is a sinner. Okay? And that's really what we want to get into our minds when we read the word sinner, because otherwise we read that and it loses all force. We say, well, everybody sins, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all a sinner. You try telling me you're not a sinner this morning, I'll just call you a liar. And it won't be me calling you names. It'll be first John calling you names. All right. If you say that you have not sinned. So we're all sinners. But the particular Jewish use of sinners, when they throw it as a name, they call you a tax collector or a sinner or a Gentile or a sinner and so forth. What that means is, is that they have rightly identified that you are not observant and you are not trying to live. Well, today we would call the Christian way of life. Back then, that was the Christian way of life. They were not trying to live the Christian way of life. And as such, they were separated. Okay, they were separated. And, you know, it really is not that much different in our stewardship uh, within our own flock, within our own local assembly. See, if we had a church member, for example, that was just openly um, sinning, like the man of incest in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and that became known and that became a stumbling block in the assembly and the pastor would have to deal with it. The deacons would have to deal with it. We'd have to say, look, this, this is not consistent with the Word of God. This is not consistent with the Christian way of life as practiced here uh, at Austin Bible Church and this, we have to remove you. See, and the ultimate step of church discipline after the, the various warnings that come. So, Anyway, a lot of these we're going we're gonna to really wrestle with and we might do better than others. We might not do so well in some of these studies because we are so separated from the culture. But if we can try to communicate, you've got to teach the Bible in the day and age in which it was written. We're going to try to communicate what the Jewish culture was. Why it was that the Pharisees had such enslaving control over the lives of these people. It's because they're... Religious life, their moral life, their civil life, everything, their ceremonial life, everything was all bundled together into one, into one package. All right. And so these experts in the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, the people that really knew what the traditions were, what the law said, what it meant, how do you live it? They had an amazing control over people's lives. If we have time today, we'll, we'll do some selected readings from the Mishnah and we'll show you, we'll demonstrate how uh, overboard they went with every jot and tittle, with every um, imaginable thing. 
All right. So that deals with sinners. Now, under point three, let's look at this call again. You'll notice it's just quite simply, follow me. From verse 9, Matthew 9, 9, Jesus went on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Simple as that. All right. Uh, you know, there's no parallel. I will make you a fisher of men or I will make you a tax collector of men or some kind of, you know, there's no parallel to the, the gospel fishermen. But it is uh, it is a parallel. So under point three, Matthew's call was identical to the call of Philip, John 1, 43, and the Galilean fisherman. In other words, it's follow me. In Matthew 4, 19, we can relate it to uh, the call of the fisherman in Matthew 4, also Mark 1, 17. Follow me. There are subtle differences in some vocabulary. In some cases, it's the verb akalutheo, uh, which you see on the screen. In other cases, it's a different verb. That means to come after, but the concept is identical, regardless of which Greek verb is employed. Simple as that. Follow me. Follow me. Now, is this a gospel call? Was, was Matthew unregenerate prior to hearing these words? And then, as a result of these words, he comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He trusts in that value and he becomes, he receives eternal life. Okay? No, this is not a salvation event. This is not a salvation event. Matthew was already a born again believer. As an Old Testament saint looking forward to the coming redemption, he is already said, this is not a saving moment. Matthew was not sitting there in the booth as an unregenerate unbeliever on the road to hell. All right? That this was a man that had already a saving faith, as it were, but he's being called to service. Every call to follow is given to regenerate people. Even our own call, especially our own call, when we're told to take up our cross and follow Him. That's a command given to regenerate people. It's interesting when people try to put the cart before the horse and they try to preach a lifestyle before there's a life. And they want to tell these unbelievers they're going to be followers of Christ. Say, no, first of all, they need to be saved in Christ. Then you can start teaching them principles of the Christian walk that they can learn how to follow. See, because that takes teaching. Following takes teaching. Uh, these other calls, if you don't remember them, if you don't recall the calls, John uh, chapter 1 and verse 43, that's a simple matter for Philip. And these are worth looking at again, not only by way of reminder, but also to illustrate uh, what I had said a moment ago about these folks already being regenerate. That if these folks would have gotten hit by a truck before Jesus walks up and says, follow me, they would have died and gone to Abraham's bosom. All right. John 1, 43, um, you got the call of uh, the baptizer's disciples here. And then the next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip. And Philip said, and, he, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Simple. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. See, they already had been disciples. Students, learners, they already were under Bible study. They were already studying Moses. They were already saved, positive Bible doctrine, learning the Word of God. They're just looking forward to a coming kinsman redeemer. 
Remember, everybody from Abel, from Adam and Eve onward, had been looking for that seed of the woman, the kinsman redeemer, looking forward to a time that God himself would come, crush the serpent's head, provide for eternal redemption. And everybody that slaughtered animals, that poured out blood, that, that, that painted that picture, knew that coming up was going to be a blood sacrifice to atone for the human race. And they're looking forward, they're looking forward, they're looking forward. And so here's Philip looking forward. Now, finally, Jesus is standing before him. And he's able to say, this is him. Okay? This is him. And, and I've tried in the past to illustrate that. I'll keep trying to illustrate that. I'm going to de develop a PowerPoint slideshow that pictures this. But they all look forward. We look back. Right? I'm assuming. Maybe I'm stepping out on a limb here. Sometimes people razz me a little bit about my youth. All right? But I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that everybody here who has placed their faith in Christ did so after 32 AD. All right? So everyone here has looked back to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And you placed your faith in what he did. And because we have the advantage of hindsight, we were able to put a name to it. We knew that that name was the name of Jesus Christ. That there is no other name given under men under which we must be saved. Now, beforehand, they didn't have that name. But they still had the promise. See, beforehand, they had information. In other words, seed of the woman. And they were looking forward to that seed of the woman. And then uh, they had uh, the seed of Abraham. They knew it was going to be a descendant of Abraham. They knew it was going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. All right. So they were looking forward for the Judah Redeemer. And then they knew it was going to be of the son of David. So they started looking forward to the Davidic Redeemer. They didn't have a name. They knew uh, the prophetic name, the symbolic name of Emmanuel, God with us. They didn't know the name Jesus yet. All right? They're still looking forward, looking forward, looking forward. They knew it was going to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 pinpointed the place. So they were looking forward, looking forward, looking forward. How do they get saved? By grace through faith. Same as us. They placed their faith in the promises of God, that God was going to redeem them. And that was by grace through faith, same as us. The only difference is we look back to what was completed. They look forward to what was promised. Now, the very unique circumstance only lasted for three and a half years, but you have a crowd of people, and I'll color them red. You have a crowd of people who were saved looking forward, but then had the privilege to look at. All right? They were saved looking forward, and then they came face to face. They came face to face with Jesus Christ. All right? And I would even put forth a possibility, I'll color him green, that someone could have been redeemed looking forward and then come face to face with Jesus Christ and not recognize him to be the Christ. Because, and green's probably an appropriate color, they were green with envy perhaps. They were filled with pride. They were so full of their Pharisee arrogance that when they came face to face with him, they didn't like what they saw. All right. 
So what, what do you do with those guys? Do they lose their salvation? No, not if you believe in eternal security. <laughs> All right. They got saved looking forward. They're saved. They're redeemed. They're going to heaven when they die or Abraham's bosom when they die in their case. All right. So we have this very interesting view. And here's Philip in this category, all right? On my color scheme, Philip is red. Because he's a believer. He's looking forward to the coming Christ. And then he comes face to face with Him. So he's not just looking forward. He's looking at. And that's very unique. As I say, this is an, this is a, uh, an age within the dispensation of Israel that only lasted three and a half years. From the baptism to the crucifixion. And so he says, we have found, I'm still reading from John 1, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, but now he can put a name to it. Now he has a name for the expected one, for the coming one, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then Nathaniel said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You find any Nathaniels in your dodecapostologues? Well, you will. You, well, do your homework. All right. Um, and Nathaniel, and then Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said, uh, "Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit." Nathaniel said to him, "How do you know me?" Jesus answered and said to him, "Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you." Nathaniel answered him, "Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel." See, he also had been under teaching. He knew what the anticipated Christ was going to be. He knew from Psalm 2 that the coming Christ was indeed the Son of God, that the coming Christ would indeed be the King of Israel. He has all of these prophetic anticipations. Now he can put a name to it. Now he can put a name to it. All right, the call of the Galilean fishermen, Matthew 4.19. Again, follow me. Were they saved before this? Of course they were saved before this. They were disciples of John the Baptist before this. They had even followed Jesus for a while before this. They had learned from Jesus. They had done some baptism ministry with him. And then he went back to Galilee. They went back to their fishing business. Some time goes by and now they're being called to serve full time. They're being told to leave their fishing careers. He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. So it's as simple as that. And this then becomes, the verb here, by the way, is akalutheo, A-K-O-L-O-U-T-H-E-O, akalutheo. You've got a combination of omicrons and omegas there. The omicron is the short O, there and there. The omega is the long O. So it's A-K-O-L-O-U-T-H-E-O, akalutheo, to come after, to follow. And uh, we get our English word acolyte. Uh, one of the boys I talked to in this Boy Scout troop was all proud. He's an acolyte. He just became an acolyte in this church. All right? Like it's an Episcopal church or Catholic or one of those liturgical type churches that have acolytes, which are the little junior deacons in training. You know, they light candles and they wear these little vestments and they help out on Sunday mornings. All right? And so he's an acolyte. And uh, he was real proud. He was telling me all about it. And I just smiled. I said, I'm an acolyte also. And he looked at me and thought I was kind of weird. And I said, well, do you know what acolyte means? He said, no, what does acolyte mean? And, well, you're an acolyte. And you don't even know what acolyte means. And so I had the chance to tell him about being a follower. And I asked him if he really was a follower of Jesus Christ or is he just wearing the robes and helping out on Sunday mornings and things like that. All right. An acolyte is a follower. We all want to be acolytes. 
We all want to follow Jesus Christ, but you know what? That means we have a cross to bear, don't we? He doesn't say, pick up your easy chair and follow me. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. Do you really want to be an acolyte? There's a price to pay. Now, it's worth it, but it's a price to pay. And here in time, believers have to consider the cost. So the call is quite similar. And uh, one that, uh, if you think about, and, and this is the thing where calling is used in so many different ways in, in terms of the, our eternal election, in terms of our calling for salvation, but also our calling, the gifts and callings that are given. For example, your call to the ministry or your call to preach, your call to the mission field. I just started a uh, biography of James Stewart, a um, longtime missionary from uh, Scotland. Um, and, and callings are pretty interesting as uh, believers recognize them or resist them, <laughs> submit to them or deny them, right? And uh, callings, when, uh, when you recognize what it is, when you submit to it, when you know that this is what God wants you to do, can be the most fulfilling thing imaginable because you have that personal, experiential assurance that you're in the will of God, you're doing what He wants you to do, and so wherever you go, whatever else happens, it doesn't matter. God will take care of that. And you can have a confidence knowing that whatever else happens, this is where I'm supposed to be. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, so anything else that happens, oh well, he'll take care of that. Okay, That's what we're dealing with here. Now with Matthew, this is what it is. Now he's saved, he's observant, but now think about it. He's a tax collector. So even though he's regenerate, he, his fellow believers, his fellow Jews aren't allowing him to participate, as it were, right? Because he's a tax collector. He's a sinner. He's a Gentile, outcast, unclean, leper. Just You have no part of us. You can't even be around us. Otherwise, you defile us with your uncleanness. So, he's not welcome in the tabernacle or in the temple. He's not welcome in any synagogue. He's not welcome to come with a sacrifice for Passover or Pentecost or trumpets or booths. He can't partake with anyone in the community. But he's regenerate. He's a believer. And Jesus Christ says, follow me. you got work to do. All right? And, uh, and that's interesting. Now, the next, returning now to Matthew 9, the next element of this, how does Matthew respond? Matthew's response to his call was to host a series of dinner parties. I believe it was more than one. I believe it was over a long succession of nights. A series of dinner parties for many other tax collectors and sinners. Finding himself an outcast from the synagogue crowd and finding himself now called to minister full time, he's going to celebrate that and he's going to use that as a witness to these other folks. As an evangelism opportunity. As a green card moment. Remember the green cards that, that uh, Hugh Crowder had for us while he was here last week. Alright? Put those names on the green card. Start praying for him. Now he's going to use this as an opportunity. And it should be. It should be a huge opportunity. Uh, we read about it here in verses 10 through 13. The parallels are in Mark 2, 15 through 17. Luke 5, 29 through 32. They're all fairly similar. I'll just read the Matthew account here. Uh, then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table, 
And this uh, describes the activity, but it describes it in, a, in an episodic fashion. As Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining over time. I'm going to give you the vocabulary and syntax on this here in a moment. Came and were dining. And the language here communicates a progress of time. In other words, uh, repeated occurrences or a very long, drawn-out thing where Jesus was there uh, maybe night after night after night. Matthew said, okay, you're having dinner at my house. And then each night, different uh, tax collectors were brought in, different other sinners were brought in and so forth, people with whom Matthew had contact. Of course, this sparks the conflict. When the, uh, when the uh, in verse 11, when the uh, dietitian and hospitality monitors saw this, you know, the people that inspect, what are you eating and who are you eating it with? Okay? Looking down their long, intrusive noses, as it were. Okay? <laughs> you imagine sitting down to eat, phone rings, it's, uh, whoever, David Pickett or... John Carnegie or somebody, you know, Cliff Beveridge, one of the deacons calling you up. Uh, what are you eating tonight? What's for dinner? Who are you having over? <laughs> Who have you invited into your home? Who are you eating with and what are you serving? How, how has it been prepared? All right. Were you ceremonially purified before you prepared that meal? Did you utter the approved prayer of Thanksgiving? You know, you didn't try to wing it, did you, with your own prayer. You had to recite the prescribed prayers for the meal. Can you imagine such a thing? With people spying on you, watching you, hanging outside your house, seeing who goes in, seeing who comes out. All right? How do these Pharisees even know where Matthew lived anyway? They must have followed him. I mean, you don't anticipate that they were ever invited to Matthew's house or ever fellowshiped with him or ever even went inside. So how do they know where he lived? All right. These uh, dietary and hospitality monitors here, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, and you'll notice, why didn't they go to him? Why didn't they bring it up with Jesus himself? Why did they pull Peter aside or James or John or one of these other guys? Or even Matthew. Well, no, they don't want to talk to Matthew. He's a tax collector. Why don't they pull John aside? Say, why is he doing this? Okay. We're going to talk more and more about that because it appears that the satanic infiltration is such that trying to sow the discord among the followers. See, if you can worm an agent in among, the, among these guys, if you can get one of these guys to start grumbling, get one of these guys to start asking, yeah, how come he's eating with those sinners? Right? If you can start tweaking a little bit of pride among these other guys, you can start working with that. Now, the uh, interesting thing about this, I, I think it just it so communicates the grace, the celebration, the rejoicing, the capacity Matthew had to be able to say, I'm done, guys. Right? I'm done. I'm done collecting taxes. I'm done working for Rome. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm serving the Messiah. And he's going to use that as an opportunity. 
All right. It's like baptism ought to be an opportunity to give the gospel. And if you're going to get baptized and uh, somebody asked me the other day, you know, we're going to have any baptisms coming up. They've been thinking about it, praying about it. They've never been baptized. They want to be baptized. And so we're praying about it, talking about it. We'll probably put a class together. We'll go do it. Um, You know, now that the weather's getting colder. Yeah, let's go jump in some water. Um, (laughs) So you weren't thinking about this earlier in the summer when it was 105. But see, it becomes an opportunity now. To invite family, friends, co-workers, every unbeliever you know. Get them there. Because this now becomes an opportunity to say, look, I am identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am a follower. I am a disciple. I am, and, and this becomes a public witness then to say, if you have any questions, I'll be glad to tell you about it. And it becomes a witnessing opportunity. This call becomes a witnessing opportunity. See, when, uh, when I left the Sheriff's Department, there were quite a few people that said, you'll be back. They said, absolutely, you'll be back. And the month before I left, we got in a 30% raise. It was a huge raise. And, um, you know, they said, you can't, you're going to walk away from all this money? Like, Watch me. <laughs> you know? They said, it's a 30% raise. You're going to throw that away? I'm not throwing anything away. They said, how can that church pay, that tiny little church? How can they pay you? The Lord takes care of that. See, becomes an opportunity. Matthew says here, this becomes an opportunity. All right? And he's going to make full use of it. I mean, you think about it, these fellow tax collectors, aren't they going to be curious? Why are you giving up the business? It's, it's a money-making business. Make some big bucks. Anytime you're willing to do something unpleasant, big bucks, right? Uh, we live next door to a girl whose dad was a garbage man. I mean, a... What do you call that? The, the, they've got a fancy term for it. The sanitation engineer, right? Drives the truck around, picks up garbage, whatever. Um, what was his name? I forget his name now. Anyway, had a daughter, was friends with my sister, and uh, made big bucks. This guy made big time bucks, at least compared to my dad and others in the neighborhood and folks around. And we learned pretty quickly, you know? a little bit unpleasant, but it's got its benefits. If you want to do this, you can get that, that kind of thing, right? Well, here's a tax collector. If you take this job, you know your family will disown you. You're cut off from the community. You're no longer participating in any of the civil or ceremonial observances. But you know what? If you're a sinner anyway, you don't give a hoot about that old writing, biblical writing of Moses, then why not? Why not sell out that Bible text and go take this job and make the big bucks? All right. So now Matthew's got the opportunity to reach out to those people and say, look, I'm walking away from all that. All right. Anyway, it's, it's, it's at least noteworthy among the pagans when that happens. You know, when Billy Sunday walked away from his baseball contract, walked away from $12,000, which is extraordinary in 1908, I think it was, when he quit playing baseball for the White Stockings and said, I'm going to be an evangelist. Okay. This is what Matthew now has the opportunity to do. Now, this banquet, which I believe was several banquets over multiple nights. The vocabulary for this is dache. One of these things is called a dache. D-O-C-H-E. Dache. D-O-C-H-E. Dache. There's a verb. Dekamai is a verb that means to receive. 
kind of like the lombano you've learned in your basic Greek class. But dekamai means to receive in terms of a person, to receive with a, with a, a welcome of hospitality. And so that's what you're doing here. This is a reception. This is a banquet. This is something happy. You're glad to have these people here. It's not they haven't just dropped in on you and you're saying, why are you here? You wanted them here. You invited them here. You welcomed them here. This is your reception. You're glad they're there. It's for a happy occasion. It's a reception or a banquet. It's the term that we have it in Luke 5 and verse 29. And the, uh, we have it again in chapter 14 and verse 13. Alright, the context of that, so Luke uses it in two places. And um, mm, oh, verse 13, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 14 and verse 13. He went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, different words there, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, otherwise they may also invite you in return and that will be your repayment. In other words, you're just doing the society thing, trying to see and be seen and all the rest. But when you give a reception, and here's the term, a dake, which is far beyond a luncheon or a dinner. When you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Those that can't repay. Those that never ever would be in a position to hold a reception of their own. And you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In other words, this is rewardable at the judgment seat of Christ. Alright? It's also used in the Septuagint, Esther 1.3. The great banquet that... Uh, that uh, Ahasuerus was throwing there. And then also in Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1, the great reception of banquet where he saw the writing on the wall, where they gathered together all the goblets and all the utensils from the temple and the different things. And they were having a great drunken feast. And the king uh, uh, Belshazzar was there celebrating with his various wives and concubines and, and all the rest. So this is definitely not just simply... Uh, an after-church social. This is a major event. This is a significant expense that he's, uh, that he's doing here to bring all these guys in. Now, to lie or to recline, as Jesus was reclining at the table, it says. The vocabulary itself is not so extraordinary. Anakimai is pretty standard. But the syntax is where we get the idea of the, of the uh, progressive nature of this. It's a present middle participle. A-N-A-K-E-I-M-A-I. Anakimai. A-N-A-K-E-I-M-A-I. The accent on the second alpha. It would be anakimai. Number 345. And that's not a surprising word. That's a standard word to lie down. Um, but we realize... We don't do this anymore, do we? At least I don't. I, I sit in a chair at a table, okay? The only time I recline maybe is if I've got a bowl of popcorn or something and I'm kicked back watching a movie or a baseball game or whatever. And then I might recline and, and eat. But this was actually the standard means for dining in the Roman world primarily, but also in Greek culture and 
as adopted in, in, uh, in Jewish custom here, to uh, recline back. This was not just simply sit down, say grace, stuff your face, and go. This was a full social gathering where you are reclining. And a number of courses are going to come in. Uh, a lot of wine is going to be flowing. A lot of servants are going to be at hand. And you're going to spend a significant amount of time here fellowshipping, discussing, reading scripture, praying. Any number of events can take place over a course of the broad evening. And then this is where, in the Corinthian circumstance, they even brought in other forms of entertainment that were uh, sinful in nature and, and not not what was going on here, obviously, because the Lord was here and there was evangelism going on. But the Corinthian model of doing this was wine, women, and song. And, and all of that was provided by a good host. Now, the present middle participle. Present tense, speaking of continuous action, ongoing action in present time. The, par the present participle, though, showing that this is a contemporaneous activity with what the other activity is. Now, this is the activity of Jesus reclining. That while he was reclining at the table. Verse 10, then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table. So the New American Standard uses the preposition as. As he was reclining at the table. And that demonstrates the contemporaneous activity. All right, As he was reclining at the table. That's his activity. And it's happening simultaneously now to this other activity. And this other activity is many tax collectors and sinners came, okay, over time. So Jesus is still reclining at the table and a tax collector comes and a tax collector comes and a sinner comes and there's a lot of uh, arrivals. And we're dining in an imperfect tense. And I'll give this to you now under subpoint C. We're dining together with. And it is an imperfect tense. Now, this might bore you to tears, but I'm just laying it out for you to demonstrate the passing of time that takes place in this one verse. Imperfect middle indicative. Of soon, anakemai. And all you've done is you, you prefixed soon in front of anakemai. And soon is the prefix that means together, together with. That's soon. If... Uh, if I have a chronos time and you have a chronos time and we put our two chronoi together, we have just soon chronoi, right? We have just synchronized. It's where we get our English word synchronized. Soon chroneo, to put times together, all right? So, you know, my watch says 10.43 and it's a little bit fast because the atomic clock there says 10.42. So I need to change this because that one's always perfect, never wrong, right? It's inerrant somehow, humanly speaking, as far as an aspect of human engineering is concerned. So I need to synchronize. I need to reset this one back about 30 seconds, looks like. 40 seconds, okay? And if I slow this one down by 40 seconds, then they will be synchronized. And that's soon chroneo. So soon is the prefix for together, together with. And so while Jesus Christ was anakemaiing, while he was anakemai, these guys came in to soon anakemai together with him. And his is in the present middle participle. Theirs is in an imperfect middle indicative. And the imperfect speaks of a duration, it speaks of multiple events over a period of time. This is what they were doing while he was there. 
Okay, And so I think um, this was not just a single night. I think it's most likely that this was a succession of nights. This was uh, during the, the period of his stay here. He's, he, he's done some Galilean tours. He's now here in, uh, in uh, Capernaum for a period of time, resting up or whatever, gathering funds and packing bags and getting ready for the next tour. So let's say he's in town for a week. And he spends seven days. Well, those seven nights, Matthew is his host. And he's going to have dinner there each night. And each night, Matthew's bringing in another crowd of uh, tax collectors and sinners. And this gives the Pharisees time to check him out, see where he's eating, see what's going on, and start sowing the discord. All right. But just stop and consider that if you lead somebody to Christ... The open door is there to then springboard off of that. Okay? Because what, what you have on your hands is a little rascally animal called a brand new believer. Okay? And they're slippery little buggers. Okay? Kind of like a brand new baby. They're a little wiggly, a little squirmy, and they make a lot of noise. Right? Well, that's a brand new believer. They're filled with zeal. They're filled with excitement. They're saved. They're rejoicing. They're not going to go to hell when they die. Their sins are forgiven. And everything is just awesome for this person who's just come to Christ. And if maybe you've been saved too long and you forgot what that was like, this is a good reminder. Because you've got a brand new believer now. And they're so excited. And now they've got an opportunity with family and friends and loved ones and coworkers and whatever to say, Okay, now, where do we go from here? Who can we reach out to now? What kind of dinner parties do you want to start hosting? Or uh, who do we invite to your baptism? See, now, now that you want to make a very public proclamation of your salvation. And this can become the opportunity. I think we want to be open to that. We want to be um, the, the aspect on our part, which is what Pastor Hugh Crowder was just teaching us on true evangelism, is that seeking the lost means we need to observe where the open door opportunities are. We don't try to open our own doors. We just observe where the open doors are and be faithful to go through them and be faithful to be in readiness when the opportunities are there. All right. And where the excitement is, where the the readiness is, that's where we need to be willing to uh, to give the gospel. And I thought that was the the most brilliant part of of Schaefer's work, work on true evangelism. You know, it's not about you don't just look around and try to find who needs the gospel. Because guess what? Everybody needs the gospel. Yeah, that's, that's all believers. That's everybody. You're surrounded by them. You know, look around for some unbelievers. They're not hard to find. Okay? But seeking the lost is actually prayerfully watching, waiting, seeing who are those in which the Holy Spirit has been convicting. Who are those in which grace has been preparing? See, because unless the Father calls, they can't come to Christ. Unless the Holy Spirit convicts, they can't come to Christ. So you start looking and see where has the Holy Spirit been working? Who's been convicted? Who's been called? Who's been being pulled along? Who's been being prepared? Who is ready to hear that gospel message because the Holy Spirit's already been piercing that veil of darkness to shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And you can tell who that is. How do you know who that's been happening to? Are they, are they glowing? Is there a purple aura around them that says, witness to this person? No, we, we can't look upon the heart. We don't know who the Holy Spirit's been working on preparing them for the gospel. But the big clue comes when they ask us. When they say, hey, can you tell me about eternal life? 
You go to church, right? Can you tell me what that salvation thing is all about? The moment they ask, that's your clue. <laughs> oh, Holy Spirit's been working on you, has he? All right. You don't have to tell them that. You just know, right? You just know. That's why we're always to be ready to give an answer to who? Anyone who might ask. That's why we have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The, the key is for us to be prepared so that when somebody asks, then we have a gospel message for them. See? And we know by virtue of their asking that something's happening. They're being convicted or they're being worked on or they've got something. Because otherwise, if that wasn't happening, would they be asking? No. They wouldn't be asking. Not a million years. Not a billion years. There's none who seek after God. No, not one. So if the Holy Spirit wasn't convicting and preparing them for the gospel, they wouldn't be asking you. That's the key. And, and Schaefer was so brilliant where he said, true evangelism is intercessory prayer. You're constantly in prayer. You're praying for opportunities, praying for open doors, and then praying that when the open door is there, that you will be sensitive to see it. That you won't just be clueless to, oh, you're asking me a question. No, prepare me to, to recognize when that question is being asked. Because you know, sometimes they're not exactly asked in so many words. Sometimes they're asked in different ways. And what they're really doing is asking for some kind of hope of eternal life. And we have to be sensitive to that. Matthew here has this great opportunity to lead, who knows, how many tax collectors and sinners, folks that the Pharisees would never give the time of day. Pharisees would never talk to these people, ever. And because of Matthew's excitement here, that uh, open-door opportunity has presented itself. Now, the scribes and Pharisees continued to monitor Jesus' public ministry and even his private eating habits. The scribes and Pharisees continued to monitor Jesus' public ministry and now going so far as to observe his private eating habits. We're going to see more and more of this intensify. Because they're observing for the purpose of criticism. They're observing for the purpose of condemnation. They're looking for a grounds by which to file charges. They're, <laughs> they're the, the runny earls of their generation. All right. Oops. I don't want to get political. Man, we could be investigated next. This is the county, right? Well, Lord willing, in nine more days, if we close on that house, it's actually in Williamson County that we're going to move to. <laughs> Still in the city of Austin, but Williamson County of all things. Well, investigating, looking into, finding grounds of accusation, disapproval. Okay? It's always interesting when the Father tests us or examines us, it's always positive. It's for our approval. Any test he gives us, whenever he examines you, when the Father scrutinizes you, that's a good thing. David says, search me, O Lord, know my heart. Right? We want God to search us. We want God to examine us. Test me, try me, prove me. We want that to happen. Because when God does it, it's always for our approval. Always for our growth. Always for our victory that we might achieve for the glory of Jesus Christ. When Satan examines us, it's always for our disapproval. Okay? It's always for our fall. It's always to find a way to destroy us, to bring us down. That's why we say God tests, Satan tempts. And there's a difference between a test and a temptation. 
testing and tempting are different things. God can't tempt. If you were here Sunday night, Cliff Beveridge taught that in, in the book of James. He can't tempt anyone. No one can say when we're tempted, we're being tempted by God. Because God himself cannot be tempted, nor does he himself tempt anyone. God does not tempt. But he tests constantly. Okay? And they're different English words and they're different Greek words. And it's important that we learn the distinction between the perazzo temptations and the dokimazo evaluations. This is a satanic examination going on here. How do we know it's satanic? Well, they're a brood of vipers, aren't they? And they're applying all this scrutiny. Why are they applying all this scrutiny? Why are they doing these things? Because they want to bring about the Lord's fall. They want to bring about an accusation where they can take him to the, to the elders and rebuke him for what he's doing. They certainly can't dispute what he's teaching. And they can't, rep, they can't replicate any of the miracles. So the best thing they can do is try to find something to discredit him, to marginalize him, to push him off, and convince all the Jews that he's a heretic. It's kind of their last resort kind of thing. The Pharisees viewed sinners as those who needed to be shunned. But the Lord viewed sinners as those who needed to be saved. What a contrast. The Pharisees viewed sinners as those who needed to be shunned. But the Lord viewed sinners as those who needed to be saved. I mean, his statement here, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I mean, that says it all, doesn't it? If you don't associate, if you don't know any unbelievers, how are you going to lead anybody to Christ? If you isolate from all unbelievers, that's why the, the, the hermit mode is such a, a, a disaster. You need to go into the, some kind of a convent or monastery or one of those kind of things. Say, <laughs> among other reasons, the idea of isolation so that you don't have any exposure to, to the heathen, then how, how do you evangelize? All right. The Lord, thirdly, the Lord admonishes them to study Hosea. The Lord admonishes them to study Hosea. In fact, he quotes Hosea 6 6. He says, Go and learn what this means. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't invite them to his next Bible class. He doesn't say, Come tomorrow night. I'm going to be teaching on Hosea 6 6, and you might learn something. No. He says, You go and you study and you learn. If you get a handle on that, come back and talk to me. Because, see, they're not his disciples. He's not responsible for them. All right? Uh, I try to be careful. I have people in the scout troop and other guys, they ask me for some biblical answers and things. And the first thing I try to ask them is, well, what does your pastor say about that? What does your pastor teach? How does your church teach that? Okay? First thing I want to get. Now, I'll answer your question. I don't mind answering questions. But first and foremost, I want to be very clear here. I'm not your shepherd. And I don't want to be a stumbling block or a division here. Uh, tell me, what does your pastor teach about that? And then they tell me. I say, well, okay. And why? Then why are you asking me? <laughs> do you think there's something wrong with what your pastor's teaching? Oh, okay. Why do you think there's something wrong with what your pastor's teaching? Oh, ah, okay. All right. Well, then, here's... Another way to approach the scriptures, okay? Not to criticize another shepherd because he answers to the Lord. But ask yourself, why is he teaching that? And why do you have a problem 
with that. See, believers recognize right away that as the Spirit of God leads them and teaches them and they hear something that's not quite biblical, right? That's, that's our defense against false teaching. And they hear something and a pastor's taught them and they say, well, you know, it's kind of it's kind of B flat and I thought it would be a C, you know, <laughs> a little off off key there. Why? Why? Because, well, the spirit of the Holy Spirit is guiding them in the truth. So the Lord doesn't say, come to my next Bible class. Let me give you a class on Hosea 6, 6. He just says, go and learn what this means. He says, let me give you a scripture. Go look into it. Then come back and we'll talk. Go and desire what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Then he explains, I do not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Join me in Hosea 6. We are out of time. But in our two minutes remaining, Hosea, the first of the minor prophets, even though he's got 14 chapters. Hosea chapter 6. His name even means salvation. Another form of the Joshua, Hosea, Hosea spellings of which Jesus is simply a Greek spelling. Hosea 6.6. 6. Now, I want you to notice this is a gospel call. It is an invitation. It's saying, come. Okay, come. Let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has bandaged us, or he has wounded us, but he will bandage us. Now, you can look at this as a couple of ways as a reversionistic believer that needs to return to walking in the light, or obviously to someone who's never been saved. This uh, could be viewed in, in gospel terms, but the primary application here is in uh, repentance for someone who already has been saved. He has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day. Think that means anything? Well, ask me again when we get to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Here's the divided kingdom, north and south. North was Ephraim. Uh, for your loyalty is like a morning cloud. And like the dew which goes away early. Now, that's a great illustration for here in Texas. Because you can wake up and first thing in the morning, yeah, there's a couple clouds out there. How long do they last? <laughs> All right. And they're gone. In the hot sun, there they go. And that's how he's describing their loyalty. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words. You know, the prophets had a pretty violent ministry on occasion. Hewing people in pieces. That's what Samuel did to Agag, right? I mean, they, they weren't just good Bible teachers. They sometimes got pretty violent in serving the Lord. That's why everybody trembled when Samuel showed up at Bethlehem. <laughs> and they kind of, what are you doing here? You know, when he went out there to anoint David, the, the shepherd boy as king, he walks into town and they're all like, uh, Samuel's here. Uh-oh. What are you doing here? Because just a couple chapters before, he's chopping up Agag and he's you know pastors have it much easier we don't hack anybody up or not literally anyway sometimes a message can be pretty pretty hacking uh, anyway I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets I have slain them by the words of my mouth and the judgment on you judgments on you are like the light that goes forth and then notice in verse 6 for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. So you say, well, what's wrong with burnt offerings? Nothing. 
What's wrong with sacrifices? Nothing. They were supposed to do them. They were, they have a, we have a whole book of Leviticus outlining how to do these things. But is there reality behind the ritual? Is there a true spirituality behind the external religion? Because what is it that the Lord loves? Is it the religion or is it the reality? Is it the ritual that God looks at and says, oh, I love that ritual? Or is it the reality that God looks at and says, that's well-pleasing? Okay? It's not the empty ritual that pleases the Lord. It's the reality. It's the loyalty rather than sacrifice. And that's chesed, merciful, loving kindness, rather than the sacrifice. And the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? That's much more important than just the external religion. God's not, you don't get a gold star for showing up in church. It's not attendance that counts for anything. Are you growing? Are you learning? Are you growing in the grace and knowledge? It's not the external ritual. So you talk about a message that's a dead-on target bullseye for these Pharisees who had all the religion, all of the ritual, all of the external forms of godliness imaginable. They didn't have any reality. And, and the Lord's saying here, Go learn what this is all about. Put some reality into your religion. Anyway, he admonishes them to study Hosea, but they don't do that. <laughs> we'll find out later in Matthew chapter 12, and I'll close with this passage. The Pharisees, they're not going to do it. <laughs> they're not going to do their homework. You can imagine, who is he to tell us what to go study? Who does he think he is? Like we don't know Hosea, you know, don't they know? I got an A in Hosea back in seminary. I graduated from the school of Gamaliel. I got an A plus in the minor prophets. <laughs> Who does he think he is? All right, Matthew 12. Again, they're going to come to him. They're going to condemn him. They say, uh, you know, you guys are eating this grain. It's not lawful on the Sabbath. You're breaking the Sabbath. Your disciples are breaking the Sabbath because they're eating the grain. They got hungry walking through these fields. And uh, he tells them, he says, you know what? Verse 6, something greater than the temple is here. The Lord of the Sabbath is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the law is here. They never gathered that. This, the age of the incarnation is a unique age within the overall dispensation of Israel. And then he goes on to say, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. He just tells them very grace, you know, full of grace here. He doesn't slap them upside the head or anything, but he just says, you know, I told you back in chapter 9, to go study Hosea 6.6. 6. <laughs> and here in chapter 12, you still haven't done your homework yet, have you? If you had known what this means... I desire compassion, not a sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from there, he went into the synagogue. Nothing else to say. Go back to Hosea 6.6. Figure it out. All right. Well, this wraps up episode 10. Uh, Lord willing, rapture pending. We'll return to this one week from today. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the reality that we can worship you in spirit and in truth day by day with each passing moment. Father, I pray that this message today would not just simply be external ritual, sitting in a Bible class, gaining factual information. Father, we want to grow in grace as well as knowledge. We want to uh, develop in love, Father, that we might edify one another. So, Father, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.